This episode is proudly brought to you by our major sponsor, Gym Journal. Please use the code MATTER, all capitals, at checkout, and you'll receive a discount on your next purchase. Please find the link in the description. G'day, listeners, and welcome back to another very special episode of the Matter Mentality Podcast, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and psychology to optimize your performance. This week, we are joined by another very special guest, another awesome uh, connect that we managed to make over in the States. There's been a lot of fruit that has come from uh, that seed that was planted, I guess, um, that has led to some really amazing relationships we've built so far, and we're just going to keep nurturing them. We're joined by Dreyer Harden, health coach from Marrick Health. How are we doing, brother? How are you? How's the States? How is everything since we saw you last? Yeah, everything's been going really well, man. I, I think that uh, that uh, coaching summit that we attended did bear a lot of great fruit and relationships for everybody. So I'm really glad that we were all able to make it out to that. Man, it was a, it was a like, it, it was a, it was a toss of the coin back in back in December when when Cav invited us. He's like, we joined his end of year coaching call. Um, and the next day he called up. He's like, uh, so this is going to be happening, and Ben's going to be speaking at this event. What do you think? And we're just like. I don't even have a passport yet, let alone like, like my, I lost my passport like a year ago or something. I can't remember where it was. I was trying to find them. Like, I don't have a passport, never been to America. June, like when was it? August. August is like peak exam time, yeah. peak assessment time and peak prep time for my clients. <laughs> and I'm like, have just like, yep, we're doing this. You're going to throw this in it in August. What do you think? Sure, man. No worries. It was like such yeah. a, uh, the cost risk analysis had to be weighed up, but it was like, how often do you get invited internationally to speak at a conference where no one knows who you are to like take that step. And we were just like, look, it's either going to be worth it or it's going to cost us 10 grand in trip and costs and we'll get a good experience out of it. And that's it. But it has honestly returned tenfold the investment of getting over there. They'll be able to connect with yourself, you guys, the Marrick team, Ali, like Tav, Kane, the Catalyst crew, like everyone. So, you know, absolute pleasure to, have you on and be able to talk the shit that we're about to talk. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly, man. Yeah, no, it's uh that was a that was a pretty fun group of people. I I learned a lot and like even through I wasn't really sure going into it what the even uh structure of the of the whole event was gonna be. Like I, I kind of just got like tapped to to come, you know, they had me do a lot of those events. So it's like, okay, we'll see what it's like. And then it was really great just to kind of be somewhere for coaches by coaches you yeah. know and and see different per, different perspectives and, and and things like that and i think uh it definitely yielded a lot of fruitful uh relationships and kind of connecting with cab a little bit was cool and um yeah. you know getting to chat with people of that you know because there's not uh you know when you get to get to kind of that level there's not as many people that are at that level and so anytime you kind of get an opportunity to really connect with those yeah. people and you always, you know, you go into it, you're like, I wonder what this guy's going to be like. And everybody's so cool, man. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you meet people and you're like, you're like just excited that, you know, they're a part of the same, uh, you know, kind of group of, of, of people, yeah, was, you know. It was one thing I noticed too, is like, you know, like um, even more so, like I jumped off, uh, got off stage and me, and me and him had a chat as well. And he's just like, everything you say, you just said and presented is how I coach my athletes, my like, you know, these, and like, it's just cool to see 
literally from diverse backgrounds of different countries and different populations. Like the guys in the audience that paid, they're obviously uh, uh, looking to learn and upskill and get to that level. And not that I even consider myself at that level, but then coming off stage and having other people that I'm looking to, and I'm like, I respect Marek. I see what you guys do. I like the education. I look at the smart side of, of coaching and people are agreeing on at least some of the basic premises and the basic like philosophies to getting people healthy and jacked. And it's just cool to see like people connecting so you know, so unique in how they do things or where they've come from, but still connecting with that that genuine love of coaching and love of education. Where I was like, this is these are my people. Like it's so right. it's so rare for me. Like one of the things, like I, you're probably the same way, but I don't find myself with massive circles anymore. I find myself with intricate people that you know I give to them, they give to me. It's like that to have those people to me is more important than like I've got my group of bros where we always sit around and get pissed. So like adding to that from around the world, I was like, this is fucking sick. These are my people. These are like, I need to be over here talking to them more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree hundred percent. Definitely. As I feel like as I get older, my circle gets a little smaller, but it gets a little more specific, right? It's, yeah. it's really finding, you know, uh, the people that have, uh, you know, not necessarily just the same values, but kind of the same, you know, ideas or or want to do the same things you know i think it's really important to surround yourself with those people that's to be honest a hundred percent of any success that i've had i'm not anywhere near where i want to be mm-hmm. has come from meeting people like you people like cav working with yeah. merrick you know i got my job at merrick through little uh little smoky right yeah. you know Stephen granzella uh because i used to train at super training with him and he knew i was in telemedicine and he knew i had an interest in hormones and all those things yep. so you know that's that's how i ended up with merrick health was smoke was like hey you do telemed right we need some uh some patient care coordinators is what we used to call ourselves um before we transitioned to being health coaches yeah um and i was like yeah let me let me interview so i interviewed with memo uh and uh brandon and then uh you know kind of ended up uh, with i think i did two interviews like a clinical interview and just kind of a shoot the shit interview and you know (laughs) a few days later i was i was on the payroll and i was like sweet this is gonna be a fun ride you know and that's it you know it's fun when you get to the shoot the shit interview and you just like you're just talking absolute shit and you're like oh yeah i can click with these guys (laughs) yeah 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 and it was it, it was really great i knew well, it was interesting too because I'd found Merrick initially through Derek, uh, uh, Derek's um, YouTube channel, More Play Dates. Yeah. Um, he had like advertised Merrick, right? And uh, uh, I was like, okay, because I was already on TRT at that point, and yeah. I was like, kind of happy with my clinic, but thought I could probably get more coaching and guidance and a little bit yeah. more comprehensive blood work. And I saw that Merrick offered that. And so I actually went through the whole process and became a patient at Merrick before I even knew Smokey was involved there. I think it might've been before he was even involved there. And then uh, like, so I was, they were like, yeah, do you want to, do you want to get set up with, uh, you know, a consultation? It's like, I already saw the doctor, you know, uh, Jamie, one of our, he's actually, uh, uh, he's from Australia as well he's going to medical school down there now, um, uh, Australian cat. And he, uh, he was my PCC. And I was like, Jamie was great. Everything was awesome. Like, I know what you guys are about. Cause I've been through the process, you know? And so that was kind of cool to come onto a company where I knew that their product or what they were offering people was yeah. something that I'd already experienced and knew that there was value in. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was pretty reassuring for me to be able to come on and know that I was throwing my hat in the right ring, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, once you know that product, right, it's easy to believe in and actually be excited to do it as a job. Right, yeah. 
So let's take it. Let's take a let's take a, a backpedal because this happens every time. I just get excited, chat, <laughs> start start talking. And the next minute, it's like, oh, let's do an intro. Forty minutes into the conversation. So before we go, before we join Marek, give us a background on how you get there. I know we sort of had a little quick chat off the air, and even Cav said to me, he's like, when you talk to Dry, you're going to hear some fantastic stories. So when Cav says that, I usually know there's a fun story coming up. <laughs> Um, that dude, that dude's a walking lesson and like wisdom generator. It's just like, yep, talk to this guy. You're going to have a fun time. There's a story there somewhere. Okay. So give us a background, man. Cause we're going to have some chats. Like even Brooklyn, she came up to me and she's like, I don't think you know this, but there's another guy here. Who's a world war two nerd. There's another guy here. He's like a yeah. hormone nerd. I'm like, Oh, I love this guy already. Yeah. Yeah. So give us a background. Yeah. Give us background as to who you are, where you come from and how you got to, to urban merit. Cause you know, that's not a small feat. America, they're big at what they do and they're good at what they do. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so I'm originally from Oregon, which is kind of a, it's a pretty small state. You know, I think there's maybe like three and a half million people in the whole state. Small, small for us here, at least. Um, and, uh, you know, I ended up, for example, like you moved to Sacramento, this greater Sacramento area has the same amount of people as the whole state that I'm from originally, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of small. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, I grew up homeschooled. Uh, my grandfather was a really big history uh, buff and, uh, and he kind of like passed that on to me. And so ever since, you know, I was a little kid, history was my favorite subject. I think to me, I think World War II and the times of pride, like surrounding, I don't want to, I'll go on a tangent on this, but I'll, I'll just That's say something. like, I think it's a really great period of time to see all of the, uh, you know, political changes and thought processes that people were going, just trying to figure out how to make them things better for themselves or mm -hmm. for the people that they cared about, you know, no, you know. Russia, Germany, the US, Japan, yeah. like all those, all those places were just trying to kind of carve out their slice of the pie, right? You know, maybe they did it in the wrong way, obviously, <laughs> most of the time. But 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 I think it's really interesting to go through the the ideology and see what kind of led to some of those uh, you know, those negatives and kind of make sure we don't the only way we can secure our future is by understanding the past, I think. And so I think that's really important. But anyway, yeah, uh grew up homeschooled. I finished uh, you know, high school around 16, uh, started college pretty early. Um, I've, you know, been, I can't stop going back to school. Like, you know, I think when we were talking about it, I probably take a semester, like semester or two every, every year or two, just to, just to kind of stay in the, the loop on things that I'm interested in. And, uh, you know, I went to actually right there, Oregon State University, go Beavs. Uh, you know, uh, I've got to interject it out really, really quick. You guys, the care and like passion you guys have for your universities. I think I've, I've told, I told like everyone, <laughs> we don't have that here. If you were to tell me what is the logo or mascot of my university, I couldn't tell you from a bar or so. The you only... guys get so like the even post graduation, you guys are like, no, nah, these guys are shit. We're gonna kill them. These guys are better. Go this thing. It's like we don't have that. There's a deep seated like uh, need to be at conflict as an American, and I think that our <laughs> universities allow us allow us to do that because you know, I still watch. We call between the Oregon uh, Ducks and the Oregon State University Beavers, we uh, have we call their rivalry match the Civil War, and people get pretty ah. serious about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
like very oh, that's very fantastic you'll see families divided in the living room on both sides one side will be wearing green one side will be wearing orange and they'll just be talking shit to each other all day oh <laughs> uh, yeah it's my favorite thing man I, I love it but yeah so uh um uh, yeah started out exercise and sports science um moved into kinesiology just because i always kind of had a um you know, a, a thing for human movement. I enjoy yep. physics and numbers and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, not that I'm any good at it. I just enjoy it. They can be, they can be. And most of the time, unfortunately they are. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. So, you know, uh, did all that stuff. There was an interim time actually that, uh, and this will lead into my time uh, working on the state opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic in California. Um, I actually spent some time addicted to some pretty harsh substances, uh, methamphetamine and heroin. Uh, I was actually an IV drug user for a little while um, yeah, yeah. before I ended up get, you know, pulling things together. Um, and, uh, you know, my grandfather was actually a drug and alcohol counselor for the tribe that were part of, I'm part Native American, I'm part of the Grand Ronde tribe, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. Oh, wow. um, so, um, and, uh, and so my, a lot of my family still lives on the reservation, my grandparents included, and I just kind of, uh, you know, hit a, hit a rock bottom a little bit, and then had uh, him to lean on, which was, you know, amazing, because I've always had He's always guided me and uh, I've always trusted him and he's never been judgmental. He's always just been been there to help. And so having that was probably paramount in kind of getting getting things put back together and then uh, realized that I wanted to I wanted to help people. So uh, I actually spent seven years as a wildland firefighter, uh, was a, uh, our, the medic on our team there uh, yeah, wow. for a lot of those years, moved up to uh moved up to squad boss which is you know you've got about five guys you're responsible for keeping alive and then um yeah. was training to take over a crew before i ended up retiring uh, i had a pretty bad fire where uh i actually like collapsed on the on the line i had you know 80 pound pack and a chainsaw and there was a, a lot of inversion on the smoke and I ended up with a heat stroke and then now i just I can't be out in the heat like that anymore ever since then kind of have a heat aversion now. So had to retire from that, which I love doing, you know, I think about it all the time, but um, you know, just health health wise was some of the things that happened to the lungs. It just wasn't, wasn't in the cards anymore. Um, and it, after a little while, yeah, went back to school, uh, became a drug and alcohol counselor, worked for a couple of years, uh, you know, setting up telemedicine programs for uh, tribes in California Mm -hmm. um, Native Americans and Alaska Natives uh, in California uh, to kind of support uh, Suboxone treatment, which I think is, uh, is is huge for some of those communities who don't have access to medicine. Um, did a little bit of, uh, it was cool because we were hooked up with uh, UC or uh, USC for the first uh, little bit. And so we collected research and we actually got some uh, research published uh, through USC uh, from our program. We, um, and then uh, we ended up working with UCLA a little bit further on down the road to kind of uh, map out what was actually going on with the uh, uh, opioid epidemic uh, with the um, American Indian Alaska Natives in California. So that was, uh, that was pretty satisfying work to do to come back from, ha you know, having those issues and being yeah. a part of that community myself, and then actually going in and, and being a part of, you know, uh, 
trying to make things better for those communities. So, yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, pretty big story. It's pretty big. <laughs> There's a few things in stuff, there. Man. Yeah. There's a few things in there. I mean, yeah, it's, it's exciting to me there because some of that stuff is what we've touched in in my degree and what we study. So, you know, part of our core curriculum is psychodynamics, uh, sorry, uh, psychopharmacology. So we get into pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, um, but more so understanding the intricacies of the way like, you know, psychiatric uh, treatments can work with people in drug and um, like drug treatments, drug protocols and that sort of stuff in regard to psychology. Um, but then one of the other core subjects we have to do in Australia is uh, is is drug and alcohol studies. So we have to look at the interlooping connections between drugs, alcohol, addiction, addictive behaviors, patterns, and the way it can in impact things, different forms of drugs, you know, uh, hallucinogens, stimulants, relaxant, relaxant, uh, relaxants. Um, mm -hmm. And you can, you can, it gets far more complicated. I think people give true appreciation for like when you see the general person, just be like, you know, don't get me wrong. I've done it too. And I, I still have times where I do it. I'm like, look, at the end of the day, a decision was made. Um, you know, there was choices made and things led to more choices and things led to more choices. So we need to preamble the choices being made that are negative. We need to prevent those things from before. You know, it's easier to prevent by preventing than it is to fix after the fact. So how do we get to that point where we understand preventing that action or choice from being available or happening or having the tools to say no, things like that. Um, but seeing seeing the data and seeing the research and seeing everything and how it goes on and the kind of like psychosocial environmental dynamics that go into drug and alcohol is so much more complex than people give credit to just, Oh, that guy just did crack or, you know, this guy's now addicted to this. So, you know, it's just like, right. even, even like just a, a quick tangent, I remember seeing around the, the early outbreak of the opioid epidemic in America, even middle-class white men, everyone just went through this phase where it was like, Oh, you know, drug addicts are just lower class, lower tier people, blah, blah, blah. And I remember reading some research and going into even a document, a document series that was on it, that a large portion of opioid users in America were actually middle-class family men because they would come from injuries and injury history. They come from like prescription medication to treat injuries. And then obviously like you guys with the pharmaceutical privacy system that you guys have, it went like, you know, I think it was like a five, five prescriptions then stop. And then it became the only, the only pharmacological structure that was similar to the opioid was heroin and that was the only way that these guys could get a similar pain alleviation because it was a lot of pain treatment uh, sorry uh medical prescription not uh pain solution or pain uh pain i guess rehabilitation so you're not yep. fixing the injury you're just banning it with drugs well then that drug's been cut off now well what's the next drug that i'm addicted you know sorry what's the drug closest to that pain alleviation that i've got on the tolerance of dependency that i've now received uh, well, the only structure that mimics that is going to be heroin. Okay, well, how do I get mm -hmm. that? Well, now you've got middle-class white guys with a family, a two-story house, the white picket fence American dream getting addicted to heroin. And now we've got an opioid epidemic and everyone's like, <laughs> oh, it's just a lower crackheads. And you're like, well, no, actually. Actually, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that that was a really interesting situation. I mean, with the, uh, with the Oxycontin um when they started marketing that here, that company actually had a lot of, uh, had a lot of misdeeds when they were first started marketing that, uh, you know, as far as the uh, uh, potential for addiction and, um, you know, things like that. And I think 
you can see that in the many, many lawsuits that have been filed that they've lost since then. But yeah, it's 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 really interesting to to kind of dig into. You realize that it's something that affects everyone. And I think that's another, you know, the, I'm not a big fan of the healthcare system uh, here for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that we just put an emphasis on the wrong points, largely kind of like you were saying, it's like, okay, you're injured. Here's this pain medication. How much follow-up is there with rehabilitation and then yeah. teaching people how to move the right way and then how to maintain, uh, you know, muscle mass and strength. So those mm -hmm. injuries don't occur again, you know, here it's, it's like all, almost all lower back things, herniated discs, you know, um, things like that. And, um, those things can be chronic issues if you don't teach people the right movement patterns. You know, mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how many people don't even know how to pick up a box off the ground without throwing their back out, you know, and, and you'd think that would be a larger part of the conversation, but it's just like drugs, a little bit of rehabs, you know, you're out of luck, which is unfortunately <laughs> what led us to, to the path that got us to the opioid crisis, I think. Yeah. Which is, which is, you know, an incredibly, ridiculous outcome for something that's so not trivial but like the the solution is so much more in the problem than just adding more to the problem like looking <laughs> at pain management pain reduction therapy like treatment rather than prescription treatment like just mm -hmm. assessing that preventing the exposure to the drug in the first place like you if you treat the pain at that the problem not with a band-aid well now you're not even exposed to the opioid to get addicted to it or you're not even exposed to the pain medication to start the process of addiction you're simply treating it before it happens it's the same when i look at like you know when i see everyone you know similar but not similar i see people talk about you know boss babe christina lost 200 pounds go her that's fantastic she's added x amount of time to her life hold on why is no one talking about how she got to three to four hundred pounds why are we having that conversation mm -hmm. To me, like the, mm -hmm. the, the, the solution being like, oh, we, we fixed her. Like, yes, but how do we get there? That what, what's the, what's the preventative mechanism here that we can work on? How do we solve that to prevent people from getting to four five, 600 pounds and being like, oh, now you're healthy again. Well, you could have been healthy the whole time. Like you didn't, need, it didn't need yeah. to go that way. Well, that's one of the interesting things that I think I found out going through and you got to remember through all this, through almost all this time, <clears throat> when I was, I, I got, I think I got certified as a personal trainer uh, for the first time when I was like 20, 21, yeah. you know, I started playing, I started playing football when I was uh, 11 or 12. I've been in sport. I think I did my first squat when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've been involved in this stuff for a very long time. I started coaching it in my early twenties. You know, I'm in my mid thirties now. I turned 34 in October. Um, so I have like a decent amount of time under the bar, you know, in one way or another. And uh, I think one of the coolest things for me was learning that the difference between someone who is obese or unhealthy or living an unhealthy lifestyle and someone who is abusing, uh, you know, uh, overusing drugs of abuse, um, are, they're very similar in their yeah. thought patterns and yeah. in their behaviors and in their habits. And so connecting those dots and being able to use, cause now I'm able to use two, what, what are seemingly thought of as separate fields and kind of bring those ideals. 
you, when you did your presentation at the coaching conference, I thought it was really cool. You had the stages of change up there and I've never seen anybody like in this coaching atmosphere kind of use that before. And I was like, oh, really? that's what I've been thinking forever. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so I thought that was, I, that was really cool. That's when I knew we were going to connect because I, I was, I was like that, that is fucking what I think, you, you know, this yeah. is what I'm thinking about, you know, how that's how this all works. And I think the more people start to put that together, we're going to start getting a lot more dynamic with our capabilities and actually coaching yes. people across the finish line or using preventative methods. And I think, I think that what happens is people like us figure out what's going on. And then eventually that gets into policy. That's one of the biggest things that I'm kind of a proponent of now is, is trying to work with some of my friends who are, you know, psychiatrists or psychologists or yep. um, whatever board members of this or that and and say, like, how do we get this into policy where mm -hmm. we're actually getting the information out to people in a structured manner where it's being taught to them when they're younger, I think is going to be kind of the key to avoid a lot of the health consequences we're seeing of people's lifestyles now. 100%. Um, so I've got a few things we'll double back to here just because, again, Everyone that listens to my podcast so far, or people who listen know in general, I don't do structure. We're going to interlude about 51 different things in here and, and eventually wrap up a conversation. So that's the end. So um, <laughs> what, he's what he's referring to there in the, the stages of change model. So I don't, I don't really show my clients these things. Usually I'll like, I'll talk mm -hmm. them through something or I'll work them through like, you know, especially if someone, a lot of the way that we market or sell the business is that the pre-contemplation stage is already taken care of. Someone reaching out has been so engaged with our content, in our marketing, in our, our results, in our social media, YouTube, whatever, that they're already looking at it going, well, I want to be a part of that team. I want to be a part of that community and culture and environment because they get shit done. So we kind of move everyone to that contemplation stage pretty quickly because they're already there. So what we're talking about here is that the, the, the trans theoretical model of change, which is very big proponent of behavior change, which originally started to help people work through drug and alcohol addiction it's been transcended i feel uh, very well into behavioral change for coaching if it's done properly i don't think enough people know about it and i think a lot of coaches think they understand things like this when you get like joe schmuck who's like motive discipline over motivation you've just got to want it and you're like shut the fuck up you don't understand what you're talking about <laughs> and it's just why people hate you it just it's just not how it works when we look at psychosomatic engagement and people are just like yeah you, you know just wake up at 4 a.m and just do the thing yep that's great if that was that easy we'd all do it so the trans theoretical model it goes through a six-stage process where you have pre-contemplation contemplation action uh no yeah but yeah pre-contemplation contemplation action oh that's gonna challenge me here action maintenance nope there's one I'm missing. Action, maintenance, relapse. Yeah, they, they, mm, fuck, there's one that missing. Sounds, that, that sounds pretty close. That's pretty close, right? So the big one that gets me and people struggle to comprehend is the relapse stage, right? So this is where it's big in drug and alcohol, but it's also big in, co in coaching. And this is something that I really try to push with people when we understand it. I don't base my client's progress on their action stage. I base a lot of my coaches, my client's progress on how, how little, how much they fall at the relapse stage. So if I have a client that we're working on behavior change through like, you know, eating patterns, body image, uh, you know, binge eating, um, you know, optimizing lifestyle, turning down drinking and alcohol, things like that on, on a prep. If, if they are falling less each time or landing at a higher level, that to me is an indication of scaffolding, which is to me an indication of progress. So it's easy to 
go great when everything's going great, right? Like you'd agree. But when you fall, how far do you fall? Do you fall back to baseline where we started like, you know, six months ago? Or is it like, you know, the thing that you originally thought would never be possible is now where you fall down to. So that to me is indication I use for progress where I'm like, oh, this person's actually getting really far. They felt like they fucked up because they had, you know, a few pieces of extra bread. But when we first started, they were having whole pieces of cake and donuts at 2 a.m. in the morning. So we've made some <laughs> substantial change here. So, you know, that that model is so indicative of someone's progress at the worst end. And people often look at, you know, clients' progress like, yeah, he's lost 50 kilos and he doesn't touch any alcohol anymore. And he doesn't have any, okay, but what if he does? What happens? What, you know, how do they feel if they had X, Y, Z? So yeah, that's just what we're referring to there is the, the trans theoretical um, model of change, which is very big in the, the counseling space, but also I think something needs to be taken off more in the, just in the general comprehension of coaching space. Again, like I sort of talked about at the summit, people do a lot of physiology and they do a lot of nutrition and they go, that's all coaching is. And every single person worth a grain of sand goes, actually up here is, you know, where psychology has to combine all of it and make sure it works well. And I would argue that those, th those things can only happen once you control the psychology side of things. I'd agree. I, I think that, I think that, that uh, if you think of it, you know, I, I think that the psychology of things kind of stands up here because if you don't really understand what's driving people to habituate things, either positive or negative, then you can't understand. You get you could tell them how to eat, what to yeah. eat, how to train, when to train, what to train. That is the easiest part, man. Yeah. I, like yeah. either one of us, I'm sure, could put a program together where we could just eat and train, and 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 it would be great if we if we both followed it to the T, right? We could just yep. trade. Here's a program. Here's a program. Great. Yeah. Stick to it. It works. But that's not that's not the tough part. The tough part is coaching. how how to engage. No, it's not. It's it, the tough part is how to engage you in a way that's going to get you to make these behavioral modifications something that's permanent. And I like what you said, like how far do they fall after we kind of reach a goal, right? Like where does the baseline come to be set? That's the most important thing. What what were you able um, to to kind of build as a foundation? What were you able to build into what were you able to habituate in a way that's kind of there on a subconscious level yeah. even anymore even if it's drinking water or 10 minute walks after you eat or sleep hype like i just make sure my tv and my screens are off an hour before i'm going to bed so i don't have that blue light expo exposure and i wake up and i go to bed at the same time people drastically underestimate those small things and yeah. and try and kind of get into um way 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 more like nuanced things than they need yeah. to before they've even kind of established the course like how are you sleeping you know what are you eating why are you eating that way you, you know those are those are the things that really need to be covered and they just kind of go like get yeah. passed over by most coaches so often it it kind of it really blows me away the first thing i ask a new client is how how, how do you sleep how much do you sleep yeah. Do you go to bed at the same time? Do you wake up at the same time? Yeah. Are you on your phone right before you go to bed? What are you doing first thing in the morning? Are you slamming a coffee, you know, in the dark, in your dark kitchen? Or are, you, are you outside, you know, stretching out, getting some sun? You, you know, it's it's very simple. And a lot of people who are much smarter than me, like, you know, you'd, you'd think if you watch like one Andrew Huberman podcast or listen to one Peter Atia book, you'd probably have everything you need to get get your shit straight but you know you have to you have to teach people those things right you can yeah. hear them all you want but how do you get that through to a person is is that's the 
that's where the money is as a coach, because then you build a client who trusts you and who's going to stay with you even after they get their results. Cause they know that you understand them and what makes them tick. And when you understand what makes someone tick, you can get them to do anything. Yeah. And the crazy part to me too, is like when, when I get a client results on such little work, like they get it, you know, they get amped up, ramped up their pump because they're like, fuck, I'm dropping 10 <laughs> kilos or my body fat's down doing this. And it's like, brother, all we've done is optimize your nutrition and we've spaced out some vegetables and protein and we've got you training four days a week with more steps. That's four <laughs> very basic parts of coaching. We've just taken our time <laughs> to get that right. So if that's what, if this is the result we've got from that little intervention, imagine what we do long-term mm. when you give me full optimal training and you give me an optimized lifestyle right. and you give me optimized data and entry and, and, and accountability. That's when shit gets fun. That's when we start manipulating full peak body composition. So, you know, it's just like, like you said, you know, people get to that point where, where, uh, it's, it's big in Australia where people claim, you know, mindset. I don't know if it's big over there in America. A, a few of you have kind of heard of it. A few of you haven't that I've spoken to, but we have this mindset surge at the moment where some girl who's 25 and looks great in a G-string bikini and, you know, lives at mum and dad's house still and doesn't pay rent or bills is calling herself a mindset coach because she just says, wake up and do it and manifest your results. And that's her whole mantra to mindset and that habits are everything. But then you see their coaching style, you see their coaching feedback from clients. And it's like, I, I watched this recently, I did a rant on it just the other day on, on Instagram because it pissed me off. One of the strategies someone used for someone craving food, and she shared this like it was a, like it, like it was, a flex, was uh, remove food from your house that you're craving and um, oh, fuck, it was something else like just improve your habits. Not the actual systemology of your habits and how that works as an interlooping system, and not the fact that you should embrace, you know, more mindful exposure, acceptance strategies, understand hunger cues properly, learn why you want it. Are you including that food in your diet? This is just a general body composition client that she had, I'm guessing. Person just wants change in life. And she's like, just remove all the food from your house. And I was like, how do you have <laughs> mindset in your fucking coaching system when your strategy go-to process is avoidance? Try telling a drug addict that avoidance is the answer to their problems. Try telling someone who's 400 yeah. pounds who eats fucking 10 pizzas a day, the answer to their problems is avoidance. Mm -hmm. Good fucking luck. Mm -hmm. Get out of my system. Like just get out of the field because you should. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, th yeah, it, that kind of blows my mind because at a very, at the most fundamental level, you're, you're completely ignoring why we're having the cravings in the first place. Uh, right. You know, that's where my yeah. mind goes to why, why are you having that craving? Like, the amount of just like, well, just don't eat it. Like, yeah. just don't eat it is not coaching or, yeah. or, or uh, just do yeah. it is, is not coaching. You know, <laughs> it's mind blowing to me how much of that you get into, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I, I can literally do a, I think I have done a fucking episode by myself just on a tangent about it. Cause I was like, I just need to put this somewhere and just be angry about it. Cause it shits me anyway. Again, 41 into looping fucking tangents and rants we're going to have here. So let's take a backward step. I want to get into how you broke given like, you know, you've, you've got an educated background. You've got yourself into a pretty decent position. Then we get into the, 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 uh, the, I guess the addiction period of your life, I guess that phase rather than harp there, because you know, that shit gets low, like understandably that stuff's pretty hard. But my, my bigger question is how do you get out of it? How do you go from that to them being someone who helps those people and someone who goes from like, look, you know, I was here, I was down amongst this. I'm going to come out of it because that's a bit like there are 
I don't want to say two people, probably two or three types of people right in those situations. One who festers and burrows deeper. There's one who kind of looks at the nihilistic side and goes, look, there's not, not much I can do about it. I'd love to change. And that's where we have the pre-contemplation and contemplation. And then there's someone who actually takes steps and actions to getting past it and then go on to improve their life. So, you know, you're obviously the latter and you've gone through the, the stages. You've gone through pre-contemplation, contemplation. Like, look, I fucking need to do something here. How does that happen? How do you, because they're fucking, they're, they're like, for lack of better terms and no soft language, they're fucking heavy, heavy drugs and substances to come off. So, yeah, you know, that, that takes a mindset. So how does that happen? Yeah, man. And the, it really, for anyone who has never experienced addiction at that level, it's it's hard to even kind of explain the feeling because it's it's not like, uh, you know, you it's not like, you know, you get off work and you, and you think like, oh, I could go for a beer. It's like you you need that. You yeah. need that. Your mind is telling you at that point that you need it for survival that's how we're that's how we're wired right you know yeah. at a certain point of addiction your body's actually seeking that like it's seeking calories to stay alive right maybe even sometimes more than the calories you need to stay alive right yeah. and so you know when when you get to that point um it is it is really difficult but the thing for me was what i'll, I'll talk about mainly what what made the biggest impact for me as far as as change and that was service to others mainly yep. um and i think i i started that with my firefighting career and then um in coaching and then in counseling and then kind of bringing everything together with what i do just as an overall health coach here at Merrick. and i think that when you and first you have to learn number one uh you have to love yourself and you have to value yourself. You can't, uh, you know, like you said, some people just wallow in that self-pity. And, you know, I, of course, I spent some time there doing that. Like, woe is me, right? Why do I have to have this issue? You know, whatever. But you kind of have to move, uh, you kind of have to move past that. There, There is a little bit of kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, like, I want to change. Yeah. And then you have to actively seek out the means to do so yeah. and the means to do so uh for me was you know continuing my education bettering myself making sure i was in the gym making sure i was eating right making sure i was sleeping right making sure i had goals whether you know they were small or large having goals and things to work towards you know you if you uh idle hands are the devil's plaything right so yeah. you kind of have to you kind of have to make sure that you have things to reach out and uh, kind of grab onto as like, I, I want to achieve this. I want to do this great thing. Well, you can't do great things if you're involved in just, you know, your most hedonistic uh, aspect of self, right? Self-actualization requires a little bit of stoicism and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, it's it's easy for me to talk about because I... I, I love, and I, I'll, I'll say this, I wouldn't change any part of my life, even the, yeah. the, the lowest parts of my life now, because mm -hmm. now having had that experience, it gives me such a great opportunity to talk from a place where people that are going through that can, yeah. can trust you or understand that, you know, you know, you know, sometimes you might hear people say like, well, you don't know what it's like. And it's yeah, like, yeah. well, I do know what it's like. So, yeah. so let me, let me help you, you know, and, and that, that fosters really great relationships. And, 
yeah, people, man, just wanting to help, wanting to help other people and then pursuing that relentlessly, I think was what kind of pulled me into the place that I am in life right now. Yeah, I can, I can appreciate that, that, yeah, it's, it's once you have a mission bigger than self, I think it becomes almost impossible not to act on it. And I think it's something like you talked about there. So like you referencing like, you know, there's several, several different great philosophers and psychologists that expanded on self-actualization, but, you know, acceptance strategies use it. The Buddhist monks used it. Um, Maslow used it as his hierarchy of needs. Once we have the baseline of needs met and, and requirements met, the, the human is then able to move beyond the basic needs and is able to look at actualization of self, you know, start looking for things spiritually, emotionally, uh, missions in life, purpose, actually acting on those things. Like it becomes something you're capable to achieve. And unfortunately, a lot of people in general stop at the the level just before self-actualization, kind of like that's that's my existence. You know, wake up at 5 a.m., go to work at 6 a.m. and I'm finished, start work at 7 a.m. and I'm at home by three and I'm on the beer by four. And it's like that, that as you were describing, one of the most powerful things that that gets people through is having a sense of direction or goal orientation. What am I working towards? What's the next thing? Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have, they just, you know, it's something I picked up on quite heavily in America is the, like the high school college route, right? Is like you, let's say you're the, you're the star quarterback, star running back, wide receiver, whatever it is. And you peak high school college doesn't transcend that to the NFL. Everything is yesteryear of, you know, I, I was that guy who was state champions in 95 or, you know, 86 or 2021 or whatever it was. And that becomes like their identity of like, of their entire life, who they were, instead of going, well, okay, what's next? And every successful person I found or person that's overcome adversity or has that experience of obstacle has actualized a goal beyond what they used to do and look more to the future of what's to come and gone, this is where I need to go. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm here. Like, and it, the reason why it connects with me so easily is I did that exact process when I went through my spinal disability diagnosis and I went through my surgeries and procedures and I went through all the things I did, my depression, I was addicted to, like, I was heavily addicted to uh, Lyrica and NDEP. My doctors were just prescribing that shit up and up in dose. Like it was, you know, candy right. going out of business. They're like, oh, right. it's not an addictive substance. I'm like, and now that I look back at it, I'm like, that's not how addiction works. It wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't uh, addictive in tendencies it was addiction, independence, and tolerance. I needed more mm -hmm. to get more to get the same response. So that, you know, they were like, oh, you know, you're not going to go suck dick for this drug. I'm like, no, but <laughs> in order to alleviate the pain problems I had, I needed to use more. I think I started on my first diagnosis was 10 milligrams per night. I finished on 150 before I just stopped cold turkey. I was like, this is dumb. And it was like, yeah. like to, for, for anyone understanding that, to take any drug pain or neurological pain reduction antidepressant whatever it is at a 15 times the original dose and to just go you know what fuck it that was fucking horrible the gut movements the fucking skin irritations the breakouts the sensations and stuff like nothing anywhere near as, as extreme as yourself and what that went through but understands me i was like this isn't how i'm gonna live the next 40 50 60 years like that's not me that's not what i'm gonna do what's the goal to get past this here if, if pain is forever for me if pain is constant and that's now my new existence. Well, then how do I manage that pain and get past it? Because everyone can sit in pain and exist in pain and go, oh, well, I've got a back injury. Like, great, that's cool. But you have a back injury at 21. You're going to spend the rest of the next 70 years with that back injury? Fuck that right Right, on. right. Yep. So to me, I was like, you know, that same process. I was like, once 
once I identify the goal of where that's going, it was so much easier to go, oh, well then fuck the drug. Like that doesn't matter. Like I'm not going to use that anymore. I don't like, I need to get past that. So what's the next step? And I think mm-hmm. it's such a, a powerful process that people don't appreciate. Like you see coaches are like, oh, what's your smart goal? Fuck that. If you give me a goal that's realistic, I tell you like you're already undervaluing yourself. Like most people's perceptions, it's like when I talk to people about their reps in reserve and train intensity, you already don't know how to train hard as it is, let alone leave reps in the tank. Just find how to train fucking hard first. Imagine setting a goal based on the fact that you don't even know you can do anything and go, oh yeah, that's, that's realistic. I can lose five pounds in six months. I can have you lose five pounds in two days. That's fucking nothing. Like that's not a goal. Right. Set a real fucking goal where you're like, this is where I want to go with my life. And then I start to see people actually fucking succeed and they feel powerful about succeeding, right? Like, like you said, self-actualizing the process. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think the interesting thing is, is, um, you know, you kind of talked about undervaluing yourself, like people undervalue themselves when they're, when they're setting goals. I've always been like wildly unrealistic when, <laughs> when I've set my goals yep. and uh, I, I almost, you know, there's, there's nothing yet that I'm not still working towards or haven't achieved is what I've discovered. If you, if you, if you set those goals and you have miles, right. You know, you can't just say like, I'm going to be Mr. Olympia and then not take the, the 500 steps between here and there and be Mr. Olympia. Right. You can't just say, I'm going to do this lofty thing. You know, you can say like, you can put that, you can see that in your head. I want to do, I want to achieve this kind of lofty goal and then start strategizing what the next week the next month, the next year, the next two years, three years, five years, you know, looks like. And once you want, you know, once you set those pavers up and you start walking down that pathway, it gets easier, you know, as you go. And as those milestones fall, that's why I think it's really important to celebrate uh, achievements and success that your clients have is even if it's a small one, like we reduce uh, hemoglobin A1C from 5.4 to 5.2 or 5.3. I go like, Hell yeah, man. Like, look, you did that. I didn't do that for yeah. you. Like yeah. you did that. You did that yourself. Like that, that is all you, this happened, this tangible thing. And that's why I like working with Mary is because we use those hard data points in the blood work yeah. so frequently. You can't lie to me about how your diet has been, <laughs> you know, because I have those, I, I can see your lipids. I can see your blood sugar. I can see your fasting insulin. I can see, I can see where all these markers are at. And, and it prevents the client from lying to themselves too. Yeah. Right. And I think that's such a powerful tool, man. And I'm really grateful to have it at my disposal now, because when you do start moving some of those things in the right way, like somebody has a family history of, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease and, you know, you move something like apolipoprotein B from 147 to, to like 92 and you're like, you're going to not die as soon as you do the work to do that, you know, like, good job. You're going to be there for your kids 30 years from now because you got off your ass and you walked after your meals. Like I asked you to, you know, and I didn't do the walking, you did the walking, you know? So like, congratulations, you did the shit you were supposed to do and you got the result. Now let's move on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and like that, that, tangible check like i call them checkpoints um and one of one of the one of the like the the ways i kind of quote it i guess is the 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 reward of the goal at the checkpoint needs to be reflective of the size of the progress 
So in order to maintain the dopamine associated motivation levels and create that interlooping cycle that we know that exists between dopamine and motivation, uh, which actually turns out to be more of an anticipatory response. People actually underrepresented what dopamine does for about 50 years. We can start to create the anticipation of that next checkpoint as a, as a, as a, as a transmitter. And we say, okay, well, if that's what I got for that, that checkpoint. What's the next checkpoint? What's the next checkpoint? And you start to develop that anticipation of what's coming. So in order to make sure that we progress that consistently, that transmitter needs to be appropriated and received properly. So we need to set marker rewards in relation to the size of the checkpoint itself. So for me, it's like, you know, when I get clients on stage, we go through a good season, I buy myself some Jordans. When, you know, if I finish, <laughs> if I finish a grade or I finish my subjects and I pass my subjects, I'll get myself some Jordans. I might get myself some comic stuff. That level of reward is relative to the size of the result and the ambition that was undertaken. When I win a show, that's going to be bigger. That's going to be even bigger. That'll be, you know, something more substantial because it took more substantial work. But what that does then is that incremental association of like, hey, you did this at this point and this required this much work. It's like if, you know, the, the easiest way to example it would be, you know, someone lost 10 pounds. So they go have like 50 pounds worth of fucking cake and ice cream and donuts. And it's like, you that that isn't a reward. That's a setback. We're going backwards here. Sure. The reward needs to be like, you know, when I see people do like these, you know, these group class challenges and it's like end of group class night out and they go get on the piss and sink all this food. And it's like, you know, these massive catered events with all this takeaway and fun. I'm like, hang on, that is creating the loop that is the problem of their change. You need to actually make it something different. Rewarding them with drugs, alcohol, food, fucking takeaway dessert and going, hey, you just lost 20 pounds in five weeks. You put on 30 just from tonight. The fuck is that? So, you know, the 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 goal needs to be, the, the reward, as you said, those checkpoints need to be rewarded and recognized so that the client goes, hey, that actually feels fucking good. I'm not just getting to the end and waiting for that outcome to reward myself. I'm seeing in the journey that there's little steps I can take to get rewards and feel good. And then it becomes anticipation of the next one and the next one. And we build that cycle of consistency. That to me is like the big process people don't, people don't appreciate. They set the massive goal and they'll reward it or look at it, but there's nothing along the way that's like, hey, this is also good. Right, right, yeah. I, I think setting up those checkpoints along the way are, is really important. And then also making sure that those things are, uh, those things are um, really, really kind of set up in a way where you don't get into uh, kind of like a backtracking mentality or 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 worry about setbacks quite quite as much. I think that knowing that you once you start setting up those dominoes to start falling right? Maybe, maybe you miss a mark here or there. That's not as big of an impact if you have all these little successes along yeah. the way, right? You just, you know, if you, if you take one step back here or there, that's not, the, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Don't catastrophize that, yeah. you know, just kind of stay, stay the course, put the work in, get to the next checkpoint. Boom. You get that reward. Keep going, keep going. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on. Exactly right. Exactly. And yeah, it's definitely something I think people need to appreciate a little bit more. Um, but again, another segue, Let's move into Merrick Health because, again, you know, it's a big part of sure. how we connected and how we got into things and how we got chatting. You know, um, a big part of of Cav's introduction to me is like, you're going to want to talk to these guys and Ali. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. I was like, put me in a room with people and I'll talk shit. <laughs> and straight away, we got started talking about like, you know, I know you guys don't just do bodybuilding, which is, again, something else I want to separate and, and discuss is that 
I think because you know you're on like the more plates, more dates, you guys are, are sponsoring the Bro Chat podcast and sort of stuff and Phil Ads channel. Everyone just kind of perceives it as like, oh, just bodybuilders do this. Um, but you know, we 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 got talking across a field of of clientele between bodybuilders, post health phases, post comp phases, um, and then moving into you know, just like we said, general behavioral change clients. Like people think people think body recomposition is either like you eat whatever you want, eat like shit, or you're fucking, you know, you're Derek Lunsford who's like two weeks out from when you Mr. Olympia that you're gonna be so on point that nothing <laughs> else matters, right? It's like there is such a, a, a spectrum, not a dichotomy there where we need to fit in. But um yeah, like the 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 Merrick side of things, it 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 interests me because we do have that perception that it's either all you do is bodybuilders and talk about drugs and that sort of thing, but they're more optimizing everything for the health aspect of what they're doing and what we do. And we like, you know, as a coach myself, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that that's important now, but how do you guys work with the general person? Like when a general person comes to you and they're just like, you know, I want to get my blood work done and see what I'm up to. I did see the full ad podcast, but I'm not a competitor. I just want to, you know, get my health better or my, my hormones more optimized. How does that work? What does that look like? And what do you, what do you focus on with them? Yeah, well, um, I think it's uh, I I think a lot of it is the same structure with different uh, a different expectation for um, you know uh, for how strict things are going to be and and how the adherence is going to be right because if I have a if if I'm coaching a bodybuilder and he's you know in prep for a show I expect him I. I expect him to be spot on with everything. Yeah. I, I, at that point, I shouldn't be coaching you to do the things you need to do. Right. So I think yeah. that's the, that's the main difference between someone who's competitive with something and someone who comes from the general population. That's where you have to make that distinction. Right. I'm yeah. not coaching you to do the things over here. If you, if you come to me and you want to do a prep, then you better like, whether it's cardio, whether it's your food, I don't care if you're full eat, you know, whatever it is, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. thing that the bodybuilder needs to do that they, they should be doing that on their own, like yeah. with, with very little need for, for me to motivate. Right. Agree. Um, for, for general population, um, I, I think the, the, the biggest difference is realizing that they think they have to do what the bodybuilder does. Yeah to get what they want out of the program. And that is absolutely not true. The yeah. amount, the, the, the amount of effort that it actually takes to get the average person somewhere where they go like, Holy oh, shit, look at these results. It's so small, man. Yeah. It's so small. Uh, and, uh, and so when someone first comes in for intake, what I really do is listen to them. You know, yeah. why, why did you, why did you come here? You know, what kind of spurred you on to make the investment into coming to see me at Merrick Health, right? Because there's some, it, it costs money, right? You have yeah. to, it costs money, it costs time. You know, you're not necessarily going to hear things you want to hear about yourself, yep. right? It's kind of a, it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing. And, and that's where you said, like, they're already in that they're already in that stage, right? They're past pre-contemplation. They're, they're actually, they're actually primed and ready to go by the time yeah. they get to me. So it's my job to figure out what brought them to me. Yeah. Okay. Now let's dig a little bit deeper and find out why you want to lose that 10 pounds. And I think yeah. uh, Cav had a good point. He was like, do you want to lose 10 pounds so you can look better on the beach? Or do you want to lose 10 pounds because 
you want to be able to get up and play with your kid while you're at the yeah. beach, right? What's the real motivation? You know, what's the what's the what's the driving factor behind you coming in to make that? And then let's make that thing a reality, you know, as quickly as possible. Because usually, like you said, you know, people get afraid of making loftier goals. Um, and so that first goal usually is something small like that. I, I want to lose 10 pounds so I feel better in this dress that I wore three years ago, or I want to, I want to, I want to be able to, you know, pick up my kid, you know, all these, all these that play with my kid without being out of breath, like all the, all these kind of things that are really just small, minor tweaks in daily behaviors, right? You know, somebody says, like, oftentimes I'll have people come to me and say, Oh, I'm, I'm I'm very tired. I'm very fatigued. And then I'll ask them how much they're sleeping and they'll tell me four, four, five, six hours a night. And it's like, well, listen, buddy, like we're going to change that first. We're going to prioritize that first. And then, um, you know, there's this tendency to say like, oh yeah, get, get all this cardio per week or, or get all this weight training per week. I'm you, you can't take some, someone from not weight training to expecting them to weight train five days a week and yeah. not be blown out after, after three or four weeks. And yeah. so, you know, I think, uh, you know, setting those steps out in the right, uh, places where we're going like, okay, we're going to do, even if it's a full body workout once a week, even yeah. if it's just 10 minutes, 10 minutes worth of walking after your breakfast and lunch, you know, and you're going to get results from those things because you take someone from doing nothing to literally yeah. just doing anything, you're going to see progress. And that's when we start to feed that feedback loop that we were talking about, right? Here's this checkpoint success. Here's this yep, checkpoint exactly. success. And then those steps, then, you know, you take them from a crawl to a wobble, to a walk, to a run. And then yep. before you know it, they're sprinting down the driveway on their own and you don't even have to tell them to do it. That, and, and that I really think is, make it's that, uh, it, it's just like the that saying, you know, give a man a fish he eats for a day you teach a man to fish he eats for a lifetime and that's what you should be striving for as a coach is getting these people to the point where they don't need you right (laughs) at the end of the day you could say you don't need me anymore and they say but i want you around because you made this possible and then you have you know i have a couple of people who i've been coaching for seven eight years now and they don't need me anymore. I, yeah. I ask them things now at this point, right? I yeah. go, I go like, Hey, what do you, what do you think about this or that? You know? And, and they're teaching me at this point. And that's, that's where things get really um, satisfying. I think that should be the end game for, for all coaches. I think. Yeah. I think, I think we share a very similar philosophy there. Like my, my approach has always been, I want to give you so much information and knowledge beyond just here's your program and your, your macros that you eventually learn enough to say, I can step away whenever I want. And it's only when your next goal comes or gets more extreme, which often is the case, that you stick around because you want someone to guide you to that. But the baseline knowledge has been so imprinted and implemented that it's just second nature, non-negotiables. It's not even a like, yeah, what people call neurotic because they look from the outside in and they're looking through the the the, the viewing glass and they go, oh, that's that's hectic. That's so much stuff. But to the person doing it, we spent so much time over time building up these general basic behaviors that it's just second nature. I don't, I'm not restricting your food. I'm not, there's no gun to your head to get up and do your steps or your cardio or your training or your certain food intakes or your diversifying vegetables and diversifying protein sources. It just happens. Uh, but to the outside person who eats, you know, only three times a day and one of them is a coffee and a croissant and one of them is leftovers from the day before, they're looking at that and going, that's so neurotic and extreme and that's drastic. And but well, hang on, hold up. That's not how you have to start. That, 
that I think is such a barrier of entry to change for people. They look at, you know, they look at us as, as bodybuilders is why I push so many coaches to stop coaching clients. Like you heard on my, on my presentation is to stop trying to coach clients like their bodybuilders more. So take from bodybuilders <laughs> and find what works for the client, because there is a lot of gold nuggets in the way bodybuilders live. There is because right. they literally right. push their bodies to the most extreme size and condition humanly possible. So there's bound to be, you know, where success has been, there's a paved trail of knowledge, right? Like it, it, there's a map to that success. So we can take from that and go, look, let's let's dabble a little bit here. But I think when everyone sees on Instagram and the Instawebs and the social medias and YouTubes that this is how bodybuilders live and that's what gets the most attention and coaches definitely don't know any better because they don't take the time to study and learn human behavior, they go, oh, well, I have to go chicken, broccoli and rice for the next six years. I've been having pizza and donuts and ice cream and beer and wine for the last fucking 20 years. That's a pretty substantial change that I don't want to do. Reality is, like you said, we just go, hey, you're doing five pizzas a week. How about we start with three and maybe do a walk? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe three pizzas in a walk. Yeah, literally. Just let's cut that down. <laughs> Instead of no walking and five pizzas, let's go meet me in the middle, three pizzas and one walk. Sweet, I can do that. Cool, fantastic. Guess what? You're now in a deficit because you've been eating five pizzas a week for fucking 20 years. Like, it's just understanding that side to me is so much more rewarding because I, the way I preamble someone's prep is I make sure that like, you know, cause I'm, I'm sick and tired of prep being this. I don't know what it's like in America. And again, it'd be a really good segue for, for America and how you guys approach things with the, those elite bodybuilders. But prepping in Australia is almost like this glamorized experience, which to me is the most dangerous approach to such a drastic extremity. Like you don't go from playing park flag football, what you guys would call flag football to play in NFL overnight. You don't just go, I, I, I caught a ball once, I'm going to be a fucking wide receiver because you would literally get broken in half and hurt. But we go, oh, I've dieted for six weeks, I'm going to do a physique prep. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? The gap in between that is so extreme. You have no optimal behaviors, no lifestyle management, no health management, no protocols in place to control yourself emotionally, psychologically, physiologically. You're just like, I'm going to do that thing now. And to me, it's such a bullshit approach because most of my athletes we've spent six to 12 months building up their life to be in a position where not only is their training good and their body's in a decent position to prep their you know their food intake is at a high enough level but also their relationship with food their relationship with their friends and family their environment's been optimized their circle's been like you know narrowed down to people that are supportive and constructive they've got goals but also like their health behaviors are in place their sleep is on point their nutrition's on point Steps into non-negotiables. Cardio, when I tell them to, they understand how to cut and bulk and, and go through certain calorie ranges. All of that takes time and been built up. So then I can go, okay, now we've got all that down pat. Now we prep. Because that is where you optimize those things and get it right. If you throw someone from fucking zero to 100 and go, hey, guess what? You barely sleep six hours, we're prepping. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, no, I, and and I think Stan Efferding says it the best. If you want to be healthy, don't compete. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. like, uh, you know, I, that's probably, and and I agree with that to an extent. I think that, you know, there, there's kind of some happy mediums in there some places oh, for some people. Yeah. But but in general, you know, I think the the last thing I would ever do is glorify a prep. That's that's the terrible uh, Ter terrible experience for anyone who's ever been through it it's not it's not the most fun thing to do 
right? You right. know, you get you're, at that point, you're taking your habits and the uh, and the things that you've built and the discipline that you built, and you're putting it to the that that's one of the things that people don't understand. You're putting it to the extreme. Yep. That's the max. That's the highest level you can do. Is you're trying to come in as big as you can, as full as you can, as lean as you can, as conditioned as you can, like all these, all these factors, all these variables, you're trying to do to your body something that 99.999% of people are never going to experience and honestly don't have the fortitude to actually see out through to the end because it's a mentally draining process. It's a, it's a psychologically draining process. I would say the psychological aspect of prep is, is the most difficult one, you know, I agree. Is, it, it, when you get do, down towards those last, you know, couple of months when things are really starting to tighten up. And I think that um, people think that they have to do that just to look good on the beach or, yeah, or, exactly. or, or, or look good in their wedding photos. And it's like, yeah, listen, man, it's, you're not even, you're, we're not even getting, probably a quarter of the way down that path for you to get where you want to go. And I yeah. think that's the misconception that these glorified Instagram pages, like, Oh, I'm in prep. I'm grind. You know, every day's a grind. Everything's hard. I just wake up and do it anyway. That is such a deleterious mentality to have for people that it, it it's actually, I, I think that the intent is good by some of these influencers to, yeah. to go out there and say like, just fucking get up and do it. And it's like, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, I agree. But I'm also in the place of coming from doing some real hard shit in my life and not being yeah. afraid to get in the mud again. Right. Yeah. For someone who's never done that, that makes them go like, I don't know if I'm even going to take the first step down that path yeah. because it's so extreme. And I, and I think separating those things is going to make a big difference for people like, uh, you know, in my experience with Merrick, you have a bunch of people come in that are expecting the expectations are kind of set in a, in a certain way for how to achieve the goals that people come into me to achieve. And I have to basically tear down like the last 20 years of social media influence they've yeah. had down to the foundation to, to get them to understand what, what they actually need to do uh, to to achieve the things that they want to achieve. And uh, I think that it would be a lot more helpful for people to start putting out information like this, like we're doing right now and telling you, like, it's not that you can't have pizza. It's that you can't have pizza six nights a week. Maybe you have some yeah. salmon and some rice and some asparagus one night, just one yeah. night, you know, something, yeah. uh, you know, something simple like that. Right. Just something. And, uh, and, and that's one of the biggest things is I think people think that they can't enjoy food while they're improving their body composition or yeah. while they're, you know, trying to get stronger or while they're, you know, trying to lean out. I think, I think people think that they can't enjoy food. I, I enjoy food. I'm sure you enjoy food. Well, and, you know, one of the things that you have to learn is how, you know, if you don't know how to cook for yourself and you're past the age of, I don't know, maybe 17, 18, you probably need to figure that out. And yeah. I think that once you start to understand, you know, and you have to teach people too, because if people don't know, if someone asks you if rice is a carbohydrate, is a good protein source, 
then they probably you probably need to dumb it down a little bit and help yeah. them understand the most basic things, right? You know, what is a protein source? What's a fat source? Yeah. What's a carb? What's a what's a source of carbohydrate? Like people thinking peanut butter is a protein source is the most yep. ludicrous thing I've ever heard in my life. And you'll see all these like uh, you know, fit posts where it's like, oh yeah, my peanut butter in my in my shake, and it's like, why are you doing that? Like that's yeah, not yeah. Yeah. in there, right? I see those good fats, you know. You know? Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's, it's fucking true, man. Like something else that I mentioned in the, in the summit was, you know, we have these, we get these nuances and these dichotomies of these coaching pages. And I get it's up to the person individually to choose what they follow, but you know, we get people even, even beyond the average client, like the intermediate to advanced athlete, we have people talking about these nuances of like, you know, what is the best rep at this range and what is the best above, above? and it's like such 0.5% moot point data where they're like, no, this leverage mechanism here is better at this position here. We should lengthen the bicep at this position. Motherfucker, just people like most of you don't even know how to train hard. You're talking about percentages and ranges of movement mechanics when you don't even know how to train to a full fucking rep with intensity and control. Before you go worrying about how to try and make it easier or shortened or lengthened or whatever other nuance you want to create, 99% of you who think you're an advanced bodybuilder are barely an intermediate. And that's not an insult. That's a, a common reaction that you should understand. This idea that people want to rush to being like advanced people and they still look at, you know, like you said, 99.9% .9 of the world are not bodybuilders, nor do they even understand the data. And we're trying to like all these, all these coaches are creating content to outsmart each other and debate this most basic shit. Like, sure, go have a round table, have that discussion. But the majority of people that are struggling to enter this game and who do you follow? Oh, I follow Menno and I follow this guy and I follow Lane. And I follow. Okay, cool. That's that's some good stuff. If you're at that level of knowledge, you need to understand. But what are you doing to start that knowledge? Uh, I don't know. Okay, like you said, you've got people who don't understand what a protein source is, or what a carbohydrate is, or what a, a vegetable is. Like they're having one serve of lettuce and going, yeah, "I've got my fiber intake for the week." Like we're so far from the optimal level that these you know coaches seem to think we're currently at like because you train six days a week do twelve thousand steps a day every day sleep 10 hours a night and have no bills to stress about and you've got a fucking successful online business does not mean that 99 percent of your clients are at that same position they are probably so far worse than you understand but they're just saying yes because they don't want to sound stupid we need to have that like you know the way i've kind of worded is meet the client where they're at and raise them like we, we can't set the standard, like, you know, the standard can't be, I'm at fucking, you know, hundred percent knowledge. You need to be here to work with me. That's bullshit. That's absolutely bullshit. Mm -hmm. We need to be down here in the trenches with them, meet them, have that perspective from like when we started out, when we were at the beginning of our careers and our journeys and everything we were doing and go, what did I not know? Because that's likely where my client is. Even if you want an elite bodybuilder, there's still points in time where they need to know stuff that they probably don't know. They just simply don't because they're just meatheads. <laughs> a good example of that to me is I remember when I was first started out, you know, bodybuilding, powerlifting, just wanting to look good and be strong and, you know, help other people do the same thing. I thought I had to eat fucking sweet potatoes for so long, you know, like, I don't yeah. know what it was. Maybe, maybe this is like, you know, early 2000s, late 2000s, something like that, something like that. But I remember like, you know, you read uh, like a uh, men's health or a muscle and fitness and you yeah. think you, you think, have yam you, and tilapia, you these kind of, 
yeah, you, you get this like kind of weird ingrained sense of what you're supposed to do and then you do it and it doesn't work for you and you wonder why it doesn't work for you. And it's because you're doing some cookie cutter like plan that was made for someone who's on a, 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 an extreme amount of gear yeah. who is like, who is like dedicated to doing to just suffering with the amount of cardio that they're doing probably for that photo shoot for that magazine that you just you know yeah. that you just read and and I think that uh you know meeting people where, where they are 100% is a principle across so many different disciplines when it comes to uh you know counseling and coaching and teaching in general, you know, mm -hmm. what we, we, we kind of uh, lack the self-awareness awareness of the fact that we're, we're teachers at the yes. very most base level, we're teachers. And that is a lot of responsibility, right? You know, you yep. can't throw someone in a calculus class if they haven't taken algebra one, right? You, you know, and I think that the way to get people there is by having those conversations and making sure that they have the understanding of what you're even telling them. Right. Yeah. You know, cause you could, you can get on. Uh, so, sometimes I like to hear myself talk and I have to make sure that when I'm talking with clients that I'm not just enjoying listening to myself talk and sounding yes. smart. Right. You know, I have to, I, that you, you have to focus on what their needs are and where they are and then guide them slowly into the understanding that they that they need to have and i think that's one of the things that you had said um at the coaching summit as well as meeting people where they are right and that's kind of been the underpinning variable that we've talked about in different ways all the way through right is where where is this person at exactly. what thing can we change here to to actually start moving in the right direction yeah, it's, it's a very a very simple method you know we learn in um in uh, a famous russian site uh the famous Russian developmental psychologist actually created it, it, it built the underpinning of Western education as he left the Soviet Union. Um, that's Vygotsky. And he developed what's called the Goldilocks zone and scaffolding. So in the sense of like meeting with someone where they are, if I start talking about, you know, optimization of protein intake and protein spacing and, you know, what, what is a, a more fast digestible carbohydrate pre-training versus post-training to maximize insulin response and things like that. And this person doesn't even know what the fuck a carbohydrate is. I start talking about sugar molecules and like, you know, sugar is bad for you and blah, 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 all this crap. And they're just like, what the fuck is a carb? Like, what are you talking about? I just, I thought carbs were like, I cut out my pizza and donuts. Like, no, no, that's just because it's a highly palatable multi-macro based food. That's, that's separate. But if I start talking to them like that, then all of a sudden this information becomes too hard to comprehend. They lose interest. They have no motivation. There's no excitement to understand it because it's so far out of their radius. Instead, what we need to look at is finding that Goldilocks zone where it's just right at their knowledge, hard enough that they can actually implement it. Like, hey, look, you are hitting 3,000 steps a day because you work at a desk. The research is quite clear that evidently people become less morbid and live healthier, longer lives if they move at 7,000, 10,000 steps. The evidence is pretty clear on that across the board, multifactorially, multiculturally. It's pretty clear. Move a little bit more, you probably live a little bit longer. Okay, so you're at 3,000 steps a day just at your desk and you eat all this shit. Let's start with 6,000. I just want you to get the 6,000 because that's going to be a struggle. That's double what you've been doing. So let's expose you to that. They get the 6,000 like, oh, fuck, I feel a bit healthier. I feel like my weight's come down. Yes, it has. Now we're going to hit that seven to 10, but also we're going to include spacing your protein a bit more. That means a couple of meals of, of chicken or a beef or a lean ham or some eggs. 
Whatever you choose that protein, here's a list of them, put it in. Okay, cool. Oh, now I'm recovering from gym a bit better. I feel better. I'm a lot more satiated because protein's higher in satiation. They don't need to know that, but we, we just know. And now all of a sudden they have three or four skills that they've built and we've just added on top of rather than being like, here's everything at once. Fuck you, you piece of shit. You should just know what it is. That to me is the funner part, right? Like when I, when I build a base client from like entry level to now I'm ready to prep or now I'm ready to power lift or now I'm ready to, you know, fucking I've got guys doing SAS training. Now that I'm ready to do that stuff, like they didn't start there. They were like, what's that next extremity I can go to? Well, we've optimized all these things. Let's move here. But again, it's like that that scaffolding has to occur where you've built that level. Now you scaffold up, build that level, scaffold up. And that's like the key to coaching is that educational process like you talked about. But people don't seem to grasp that as coaches. They're just like, oh, here's your macros and data. Go nuts. Like, cool. Right. cool. What does that what does that mean? What is that? What what's what? What is it? What's the what 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 counts as a vegetable? I, I had a client ask me like, "Oh, do you count potato as a vegetable?" And I'm like, "No, no, no." In this sense, we're looking at cruciferous vegetables, different color spectrums. We're looking for higher fiber content. You know, include fruits and uh, fruits and berries and stuff as well. It's like, okay, cool. I was just thinking the potato count, and I'm like, okay, that's a mistake by me. I could have met, met you a little bit lower. I now know that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, man. I think it's it's very curious to kind of uh, learn how to, and that's where that motivational interviewing process kind of comes in when you're first meeting with people, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you've got to really dig into, uh, you, you can get people to talk and it's very difficult to uh, manage not to just get yes or no answers. Getting yeah. people to actually talk about uh, talk about things is where you're gonna where you're gonna learn about them, and that is uh, that's one of the more invaluable things that come from the like counseling side of things. Is is I have to figure out what's going on with you, so yeah. I have to get you to talk to me. And I think that's one of the things that in the health space is gonna do all of the all of the really great doctors that I work with. One of the things that they're really really good at is getting the person to express their symptoms, yeah. uh, you know, express the reasons that they, you know, express those reasons that they came in, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. And then a lot of the time during the appointment, I'm, I'm like, well, you didn't tell me that. And it's because the doctor that I'm working with is, 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 is working on such a high level of understanding how to get people to open up about those things where I'm just like, okay, cool. Well, that makes so much more sense for all these other data points that I collected yeah. from this person. You know, you tell me this one variable over here and, and then all of a sudden, all of this makes sense, right? You know, all of, all of these things that you have going on just got busted wide open and we know, you know, which variables we need to manipulate now. So. Yeah, it's definitely an undervalued skill um, that I think a lot more coaches need to pay attention to. Uh, but let's mate, let's finish on with something with uh, the some of the funner side of things, the more the more taboo stuff that Merrick, I guess, yeah. does does get to work into, and that is you know looking at bodybuilding because that is uh, you know part of my coaching process and part of heavily of what you guys do as well. Um, you know, something that's excited me recently is the harm reduction involvement that's going on now in bodybuilding. Um, you know, forever, it was just a matter of just throw everything at the kitchen sink and see what happens. Right. Like, you know, I had people tell me that like, uh, experience trumps knowledge because, uh, you know, age is not that age is not, I would choose someone with experience over age because they've been there and used it. And I was like, hold the phone. The amount of people that I know that exist in the bodybuilding world where experience for them was just taking every drug under the sun, not checking their blood work, not checking their health markers, not checking anything that, that age old, like cardio is that spanish i don't do that like all these things that people do that that were kill, <laughs> literally killing themselves 
and going, oh, that's just what it takes to be a bodybuilder. Now we're starting to see this, this uh, almost this surge. I don't say a reemergence because it never really took off, but actually now this surge or almost like an enlightenment period in, in the health of bodybuilding where we're going, actually, you know what? With better structured stack design and health mediations and interventions here, here, and here, we can have you train harder, train longer, compete longer, be healthier and live longer, not just take everything and, you know, shoot yourself in the foot and then die. Right, right. Well, and unfortunately, you see a lot of these younger bodybuilders kind of blow themselves out early. You see, see guys from 18 to 21 go from go from just starting out to being these mass monsters. And you wonder how that happened. I, I guarantee you it didn't happen in a fashion that's going to, you know, keep their heart healthy for another 70 years. Uh, and I think that one of the really cool things that I've been seeing with, you know, I have some friends who are pretty high level bodybuilders who are kind of starting to hit their stride and find their success. And they're all closer to my age than they are their early twenties. You know, yep. these guys are in their, their mid to late twenties, even early thirties, some of them where they're starting to win bigger shows and they're mm -hmm. starting to, you know, move into the pros and things like that. And it's cool to see because I've watched those guys grind out, gr grind out the heavy reps, do the heavy lifting, do the dieting, do the, you know, do the show, do the smaller shows, you know, take advantage of the rebound out of the show to grow, you know, doing all these different things where they can actually build the experience to be successful, right? Yeah. Instead of just, you know, I'm going to take five grams of gear in every oral under the sun and, you know, hope that my liver and my kidneys hold up long enough for me to win a show that matters. And I think it's, uh, it's promising, man. A lot of guys that I have come in, they'll already be doing things to control their blood pressure. They'll already be doing things to control their lipids. They're already paying attention to their liver markers, their kidney markers, you know, the things that can get kind of screwed up when you're using some of these exogenous hormones. And I think that, uh, I think that that is really cool to see in comparison to even just a couple of years ago, looking at, you know, cause I've looked at blood work for a long time, even before I was with Merrick and looking at people's blood work then compared to now and me having not even talked with them about it yet and see things be much, much better than they, they used to be. I think that's really cool. And I think that is responsibility of the people who are, uh, very visible in bodybuilding. Yeah. I, I believe it's your responsibility to say like, you know, people always want to hear about you, oh, what cycle are you on? What drugs are you doing? Yeah. And it's like, well, let, like, okay, you want to hear about what, what I'm taking? Let's talk about, you know, Telmasartan. Let's talk about yeah. Izetamide. Let's talk about taking a statin. If my, <laughs> if, if things get too out of control on my lipid panel, let's talk about Nabivolol. Let's talk about, let's talk about all the boring stuff because that's what really matters. At the end of the day, the, the, the drugs are easy, you know, when it comes to the, uh, when it comes to the, you know, actually building the tissue and, and the anabolic side of things. Cool. There's like, what, like a handful of things that you might employ. And then that's pretty much it for most people. Right. Yep. And so, you know, getting into the other side of things, like how do we maintain these other variables for my health long-term? Cause you only get better, you know, uh, older bodybuilders look, 
look better. Their muscle density is there. The separation, when their conditioning is dialed in, you can see the difference between a young yep. guy and a veteran, right? You yep. know, you put them on stage next to each other and you can see the difference if you're seasoned at looking at those people, right? Yep. And so I think it's really important to get, a, you know, get the ear of the younger guys and say, like, if you want to look your absolute best, if you want to be the best bodybuilder possible, you need to be doing this 10 years from now, man. Yes. And the only way to be doing this 10 years from now is to be alive. So let's yeah. focus yeah. on things that are going to keep you that way, right? Allow your body to actually, you know, sustain the work you're about to put it through. Like, and again, it's something that people don't comprehend is the delayed gratification of bodybuilding is people struggle to look at 10 year plans or 10 year goals or like those, those 10 year processes and go, that's something I'm going to work towards. Cause it's so boring. Like what, what can I do in the next six to 12 months, put on 20 or 30 pounds of stage weight? No, 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 no. The average return. I think even if you look at Nick Walker been competing since he was 18 16 and he's now 26, he has a 10 year career and he's been using for a long time of that. His rate of return only works out to be like four kilos per year, uh, which is still 40 kilos of actual stage mass. But four kilos per year is not substantial. It's substantial over time, over mileage. You add that up. But if you look at that year to year, that's not a drastic increase from like, you know, the average, or it is from the average person. But from for most people, like you say, oh, I've only put on four kilos of muscle this year. And they'll be like, oh, that's, oh, that's pretty whatever. But you stack that over 10, 15 years. Now that's fucking huge. Like say you're, you're an 80 kilo man starting out lean, You've added four, 20 kilos, 80 pounds of stage mass, nearly 100 pounds of stage mass in that time for that 10 years. That's a lot of fucking weight and size. But you've got to be able to look at that journey, that long distance, like Samson Duata. He's 37, 38, coming to the peak of his career, competing now for the top three position. He's arguably going to be Mr. Olympia. That didn't happen at 27 or 26 for him. He took, like, yeah, he was competing. I think his first pro show was like 20, 20 25, 2015. And he'd been competing since he was 20, uh, since 2013, 2011, something like that. That's a 10 to 12 year chunk of time to get to the point now where he's taken off as an overnight success. But that like that journey has to be looked at. We go, well, how do we get there now? Well, we can see, are you using telmosartan? Are you doing things to reduce and control blood pressure? Are you doing things physiologically, like doing your cardio two to three to four times a week in a certain blood point, uh, uh, heart rate radius to keep that th that in check? Are we keeping our, our uh, faster blood glucose and our blood sugar levels down? Are we keeping that in control? What food sources are you using? Are we making sure we're getting the right DHA to EPA fucking ratio so you're getting the good, uh, good, good fats in for health and also diversifying protein sources, not just turning to fucking pizza and burgers? All these things that we can do, even in off seasons, where it's like, it's not just for everything in the kitchen sink, right? Like it needs to be structured and conscious for the long journey. Like we're not looking from you leaving the port and going, oh, let's just fucking send it on the boat and go as fast as we can. Motherfucker, we've got a six month journey to the destination. That's going to take a long time to sail. Let's let's take our time with it and go into the wind properly and fucking, you know, flow the seasons. But like you said, you know, we get some young kids that come up and just go, well, I've watched Chris Bumstead now on YouTube for three years. I'm going to take everything under the sun and I want to be him. Okay. He's also 35, 36 and been doing this or whatever. He's 34 now or something and doing this a fair while. Like, looking at blood markers, looking at your blood work, looking at your health panels, at your health actions to do this forever. Like, yeah, again, changes, just stuff that shits me. But we look at bodybuilders and you'll see guys do like, he's a day in the life of me eating. And it's chicken and rice, chicken and rice, beef and rice, beef and rice, some sort of oats. 
Nothing in there is like <laughs> antioxidation. Nothing in there is vegetable or fiber movement. Nothing in there is like insoluble and soluble fibers. There's not a diversity of the color spectrum of fruit and veg. Like there is so many other ways we can optimize your health to last in bodybuilding that goes just beyond drugs. But it's like that stuff that needs to be, we need to have those conversations, right? These conversations have to happen so people go, I can be healthier and a bodybuilder. Well, I think it would be, I think it's important to say that to be the best bodybuilder possible, you have to be as healthy as possible. There's no way, there's no, there's no way that you can, can be as good as you can be in the sport of bodybuilding if you feel like shit all the time. And I know so many bodybuilders who just feel like garbage all the time. And I think that's super important for us to, to, to bring up, if you feel fully most of the time you are doing it wrong. Yes. That's, that's just, that's just the, what that's just what it comes down to. I mean, a healthy, happy person is always going to be able to achieve more. And, mm-hmm. you know, even going into things like, uh, you know, making, making, making sure people are maintaining like their, their personal relationships. I know so many guys who have been in like long-term relationships and then they get into a serious prep and all of a sudden, you know, their girlfriend leaves them and, you know, they're they're not talking to their friends anymore and all that kind of stuff. I think the mental health side of things is probably pretty important too, but that's, that's a whole nother tangent. But I mean, even, even looking like, again, it's people not understanding the psychosomatic relationship, how important it is. If you are stressed, if you're emotionally drained, damaged, and you're, you're messing up relationships and you're not relaxing properly, you're not stimulating parasympathetic vagus nerve reactions, then it's going to impact stress and cortisol. Stress and cortisol is going to impact digestion. That's one of the pathways that gets shut down when we go through a high stress fight or flight response. The body shuts down and increases cortisol, which decreases metabolism and breakdown and digestion of food. The body doesn't prioritize when you're running from a fucking tiger that you should digest food and shit properly. That's not its concern. So if you're in a heightened state of stress and arousal because you're emotionally worked up and you know, you're pissing on your on, on your missus or she, you know, a female, if she's in prep and she's pissing all over her husband and making things worse for herself, that is going to impact the process then or system of recovery, of training, of growth, because the body isn't prioritizing muscle protein synthesis during the escape from a fucking mammoth that you know, you're supposed to be running from 10,000 years ago. That's what we perceive stress as. Right. That's what's the same system. So if we're going through that process and you're just like, oh, fuck everyone who didn't, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me and blah, 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 and all the other cool bro shit that everyone comes up with and they think they're a hard ass. All of those things and those processes, if we're not looking at that, at that, even from the blood work point of view, high cortisol levels, high C-reactive proteins, high degrees of inflammation, you're not going to be digesting like foods efficiently, protein transport, uh, transport proteins aren't going to be working effectively. You're not metabolizing and moving those foods through the, through the tract efficiently. The stomach won't be digesting. You start to get food ulcers. You start to get waste problems because you can't go to the bathroom effectively. All that shit impedes your ability to grow muscle. It's not just take the drugs, eat the food, build mass. It's also how is this body as a system optimized inside that blood work and mentally to go, it can process and handle everything you're doing. Because if that isn't in place, right? If that stuff isn't working effectively, then you're almost wasting time. Like, yes, calories in versus calories out. But if it isn't working to optimize those calories, there is going to be a struggle point. Yeah, 100%. 100% agree with that. It's just a, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a wild concept for me that people kind of, they like, yeah, there's weird flex that I want to make preps harder than it needs to be or my life harder than it needs to be because then I get to say that it was a hard time and I overcame and had this big speech on stage about adversity and blah, blah, blah you know what? I want the easiest fucking prep possible because it means everything's working. 
Like it means my heart right. rate is in the place I need to be when I need to sleep. I need, I know that my adrenaline's where it is when I'm training. I know that my cortisol levels where it is when I rise in the morning, but I also know that my melatonin kicks in at night and I'm sleeping. I know that my body's processing, digesting food. My blood health markers are in check. Yes, I know my ALT and AST is gonna be slightly elevated because I'm taking exogenous hormones. My creatinine's probably gonna be a bit higher because I'm training fucking hard and breaking down tissue. Those things, yep, I'm expecting that those are going to be slightly up, but they're in radius of what's normal for what we do. All of these extra things, if I add shit on to make it harder, and I can't go to the, like the amount of people I see drop out of preps because of like digestion issues, bloating issues, diarrhea, like all this stuff. And you're like, that isn't like, yes, it's kind of more normal in prep, but that shouldn't be happening. It's because somewhere along the way in this process, this journey, you fucked up somewhere. Something like you weren't taking consideration these consequences and these, these areas. Right. And I think that's something that people get a lot wrong is like, oh, my prep was hard. That like I'm harder because of it. It shouldn't have been that hard. You made it that hard and fucked it up. Right, right. Yeah. I, I don't understand the whole uh, wanting to make things harder thing because it does seem like you get some cool points for, you know, uh, kind of putting out there like, oh, it's a grind and it's a struggle. It's like, what part of your process is screwed up that you're struggling or that it's hard? Like, well, why is why is that why is that glorified? Because to me, if your coach is doing his job, you're doing your job, everybody's kind of vibing and things are the way that they're supposed to be. It should be like, yeah, man, it's going to suck to be in a calorie deficit. It's going to be suck. It's going to be hard to put in the amount of work when you're that you need to put in when you're tired, all that kind of stuff. But that's all stuff that people go through every day in their regular lives with their regular jobs. You know what I mean? You're just choosing. And then the other thing too, that I always think is funny. is like, you chose to do it. Like, yeah. why bitch about it if you chose yeah. to do it? You know, at the end of the day, it's 100% your decision that you wanted to go do this hard shit that, yeah. to, to get this result that you wanted. And at the end of the day, I think like, uh, you know, I'm very careful to kind of make sure to to uh, support and motivate people. But sometimes you just have to tell them to not be a little bitch and, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> just just put in the work at the same time, right? It's something, something you'll appreciate. I think I get, I get scorned a little bit over here by some people because I go pretty extreme with it. But when I hear people like complain to me about, you know, and not so much complain, but yeah, there's, there's general points. I'm like, look, I comprehend that you're hungry. I get it. I've been there. I, I do it myself. I understand it is fucking a struggle. But when it's like this incessant complaining and like, oh, you know, fucking this restriction, it's this, I can't, I can't do it with my friends and blah, blah, blah. Look, motherfucker, you chose this hard. But at the same time, right? Yes, you're in a deficit. Yes, it's exhausting. It's tiring. You're hungry. I get that. But at any point in time, you can quit. You know who couldn't quit? In the fucking siege of Leningrad, dudes were eating 800 calories mixed with sawdust and shit, literal human feces, in order to sustain the battle to fight for their country and prevent the people they love from being killed by the Nazis. I don't know if we can say that word anymore on the internet, but I'm going to say it anyway. That <laughs> is a different level of hard that you can't comprehend. But when you have that perspective and, you know, it's a, a neat little segue is to like my love of World War II and like just history in general for perspective. You can take from that and go, oh, look, this is pretty fucking hard. My hard is a choice. I can quit whenever I want. They didn't have the choice to quit. If they quit, they died. And like that to me is such a whole different level of, of life and struggle and, uh, and resilience that me complaining about food is a moot point. <laughs> it's not even like, yeah. I'll tell my coach, like, look, motherfucker, when does this dig end? I want some more carbs because I want to train. But that's from a place <laughs> of like, I'm just being a bitch. Not so much like, oh, you don't understand my struggle and it's fucking hard for me. Yes, of course it's fucking hard. But at the same time, you can quit whenever you want. Right, right. 
Yeah, I've been into uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, listening uh, about uh, I'm moving into like uh, Korea and uh, the Korean War and Vietnam War. And uh, mm -hmm. some of the things that those guys went through there with like the supply lines and supply chains and and what they were eating and how, how they were surviving. And it, it's like, it, at the end of the day, I think people, that, that's another reason that I'm really into history is because you, we, if you want to understand struggle, look at the strife that has kind of occurred throughout human history, you know, and I think war is the best way to look at that, right? Um, yeah. You know, at the end of, at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, when the when the opposing side decides decides it's a scorched earth policy and there's not a living animal for 300 miles in any directions and you're living off of sea rations for however long, right? You know, yep. then 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 maybe you can complain, right? Yep. <laughs> but until we get to that point, like eat your eat your rice and and uh, try to enjoy yourself, right? Hey, like. I think I, I remember reading some research on it. the average lifespan of a second lieutenant in a, in a general firing squad in Vietnam was like 11 seconds. Like that, that level of that level of adversity is something you can't even compare to with being like, Oh, you don't understand my struggles bro. you go to the gym every day in a safe environment with air conditioning and you choose to eat less food over time, but still have the option to eat whatever you want. And you have quality protein sources and you can literally sleep, at night, every night safely. We, that's not the same. That is not struggle. It's a struggle, but it's not struggle. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things too. That's why I tried to challenge myself early on in uh, a lot of my life experiences to do some harder things like, yeah, you know, uh, like being on the fire line for, 24 hours being away from home for months yeah. at a time sleeping four hours a night for weeks and weeks and weeks in a row sleeping yeah. literally next to a burning fire there's a fire right here and i'm sleeping on my pack right here hoping the guy next to me doesn't fall asleep who's supposed to make sure we don't burn to death you know <laughs> like hoping that that guy who is also tired as shit doesn't fall asleep while <laughs> i'm trying to sleep over here you know and and you've got like a sandwich that's been in your pack for you know 18 hours and you know that's what you got to that's what you got to run off of go get them you know i i think it's important to uh i think it's important for people to challenge themselves to do hard things because what i was getting at is i think difficulty is a matter of uh experience and perception so the harder things that you put yourself through the easier things that are difficult in the future will be for you yeah. to push through. And I think that uh, it doesn't always have to be, you know, for somebody who thinks that being in a calorie deficit is one of the more difficult things that they've ever done. Maybe it is, you know, for maybe, for maybe some yeah. people they're ex experientially, this is the hardest thing that they've ever done. I think that's an important uh, perspective to keep too, you know, um, along the meet people where they are train of thought. And, uh, but that's where you start doing, you know, going back to that scaffolding that you were talking about is, is like, okay, being in a calorie deficit, super hard. Let's get through a couple of months of that, even if it's just minor. And then let's keep increasing the difficulty for people. Because I think that's, uh, you know, that's when, uh, when, when you look at like, uh, I don't know if you know who Colonel David Hackworth is, but he started out in uh, Trieste post-World War uh, two, and, uh, he was, uh, he, he had, uh, lied and told his, uh, recruiter that he was 
uh, 18. He was 15 at the time. And, uh, and uh, he hired a homeless guy to pretend to be his dad. He bought the homeless guy a bottle of wine and had the homeless guy come down and sign him up, sign him up. So he missed World War II, but he went through Korea and he went through Vietnam. And then he actually became a little bit more of a, a pacifist towards the end, kind of like the 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 reasons we were fighting a lot of our wars post-World War II, at least, were kind of bullshit. And I think yeah. that's probably been the case for a lot of wars. Like, I, I look back at World War II, that's one of the reasons that I, I really like that time period in history is because that was, to me, the, the last period of, like, we're fighting over morals and we're fighting yeah. over beliefs and we're fighting over things that, uh, you know, how do we want the world to be? And that, that is why I put so much emphasis in my like learning into, into world war two on it, uh, on its own, because, you know, everything since then has kind of been a lot more highly politicized. The, the politics were pretty simple back then. It was, it was, a it was, a the, it was good versus evil, right? You know, it, <laughs> when, when we were at that point. And um, I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree in, in as simple, as simple terms as it is, there was literally a case of like, even in America's isolation in this period, and it was going mm -hmm. through that whole process where it was like America was like we're under lock lock and key we're away from everyone don't come near us we're going to focus on doing us and rebuilding after World War One and the economic collapse and then Europe's involved in this Britain's getting its ass kicked but they're not they're also like yeah they're still heavily involved in fighting back France is being flogged that whole period then was basically like the world needs to stop this evil thing happening in the middle of Europe because these guys are pretty fucked and the funny part is the the crazy part to me is. People don't even understand that we didn't actually understand the about the death camps and the the enslavements and the relocations until after the fact. That like we have this really easy hindsight now to go, oh yeah, that was wrong. But people didn't know what was happening at the time. There was, you know, falsified data, there was fake pre press conferences, there was falsified like, you know, almost like misdirection by the mm -hmm. propaganda agencies in Germany to hide it all what was happening. So people were like, oh no, it's not a big deal. And you know, the the Churchills rose up and were like, actually, you know what? We actually need to step up and do something. This is getting ridiculous. And luckily he managed to take office because uh, I always forget the prime minister before him basically allowed a certain German leader to carry on his ways for as long as possible before he did. I'm like, no, they'll calm down. We'll, we'll they'll, they'll relax. We told them there's a sanction. They'll stop. France gets their ass kicked. Poland, Czechoslovakia, the Rhineland all gets flogged. And then it's like, okay, there's a clear bad guy here. We all need to kind of be involved in this. Even Australia gets dragged into where in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. And the Commonwealth is like, hey, we're calling on everyone. Guess what? You're coming over here. Cool. We're going over there now. Like there was a clear point in time where it was good and evil and everyone's involved in stopping that. Even to the point where literally dichotomous political economic beliefs, communists and, and capitalists are like, hey, we should probably fight that guy together. That's, that's a pretty bad guy. We should stop that. There was pretty clear cut lines at this point in 1937 to 1945. That was a bad dude. And then yep, after that, it's yep. like everything becomes like politicized and, you know, we just want to stop the red menace and these guys stop and calm down and uh, whatever. You know, and what's so funny to me about that too, is without Russia, man, uh, how do things turn out if Stalin doesn't throw 30 million Russian soldiers on the, uh, oh, yeah. against the Germans? You know what I mean? Like, like it's funny as an American, 
we have like a pretty inflated sense of self when it comes to that uh, when it comes to that war when there were so many uh, other parties that took uh, you know huge casualties and, and huge loss of mm -hmm. you know life and uh, and lifestyle. It's like you know we it's funny to me we pretty much immediately go into um, into uh, like a fighting stance with Russia after that uh, considering they're like uh, probably you know the linchpin of what actually allowed us to be able to fight back uh you know against against the germans in the first place which is super interesting to me that um you know as soon as this as soon as the dust settles it's right back to same old same same old with the geopolitics it, it cracks yeah. me up it's like we never we never learn anything like but, everything going on in like like with russia and ukraine and and like our i don't know what the hell we're doing you know like we keep sending ukraine money like hand over fist and it's like are, are we are we going to involve ourselves in this or 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 what you know what like what is this weird kind of like we're not really doing anything, but we are. And it's know, like some I, proper, I the same thing that happened in Nam, where it was like, we're going to send some, um, oh, what did you guys call it? Some advisors. We'll send some advisors and, advisors, some yeah. and we'll train you up. They're CIA operatives. Oh, now we're going to send some special platoons in. They're fucking elite special forces. Oh, now we're going to send the seventh <laughs> fleet. Oh, now we're going to start landing some forces in. Motherfucker, what? Like, that's, that's not just advising. You've literally just invaded. <laughs> justifiably right, right. but like you guys are like there's there's advising and then it's like hey we're going to graduate this to a full land expedition force and and you know i see i see that happening eventually there's there's either going to be a resolution or we're going to end up with like uh just a, a shit ton of people there and i don't think it's going to be pretty for anybody but you know i guess we'll i guess we'll see what happens it'll be it'll be interesting It'll be interesting. I'm too old to get drafted now, I think. So I'll just be here, like, right, you know, <laughs> I think causing I think a ruckus. And and from being useful. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. We can just, uh, we can just bitch about it on the, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, one thing I noticed is like, you guys as Americans, your pride not only goes to the national level, but it inversely goes right down to the local level. Like the, like you're proud of your local county, your community, your state, your university, your side of the coast. Then to like, when it's like a global geopolitical geo engagement, like to the national level, the international level, like, like, like you said, you no know, talking about the, the, the win of, of world war two, the amount of people who I don't actually understand, don't understand, that Russia was the ones to get in or the Soviet Union were the ones to actually reach Berlin first and lock that down and, and win that battle to the point that like the pattern was stopped and said, Hey, you guys, the, the third army, guess what? You stop here because the Russians are coming. And if you go any further, you're going to fight and they're probably going to win at this point. So these two massive Russian armies coming in from like North and South, those guys get Berlin and they get Germany. And that's what's going to happen. Like the amount of people that don't actually understand that's how it finished and they're like, oh, yeah, but America saved that. No, you did. Like, by all means, the, the Allied invasion from the West <laughs> Coast, huge deal, huge. However, the, the, the total land forces of the, of the Western invasion was one battle of loss in Leningrad. That's mm -hmm. the that stark difference here in size. People don't quite grasp it. It's like, yeah, yeah there was a huge impact because America is off also fighting the Pacific War. That was huge for us. You know, without America, we become, we're speaking Japanese huge deal right but it's right. like the, the 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 national 
pride you guys have almost transcends reality sometimes. It blows me away. And it's not even like a fucking not sometimes, hundred percent like, all the time. Crazy, it's not every time. hundred yeah. percent yeah. all the time. Transcends reality all the time. It's it's, and you know, it's funny because I think most of us have that self realization that it is a little bit ridiculous. But I think that's a part of, um, I I think that's a part of our culture and i don't yeah. think it's ever really going to change like we're pretty divided politically right now but i think we're at this kind of like crossroads where yeah most people are kind of getting back that sense of like hey you know we've had it pretty good here for quite yeah. a long time let's not screw that up and i think yeah. i think that i'm really interested to see what happens over the next five years or so here because i think um you know i think we're going to get a new president in office i think we're going to see um someone who's a little bit more more balanced um yeah. you know because trump obviously he's uh he's an interesting character biden this is definitely an interesting character then you know as we kind of push forward i think uh, i think we're gonna we're getting back a lot of that some of it is not as positive uh, uh, as other parts of it but we're getting back some of that like national pride in like hey maybe we should come together a little bit more and i think that that's uh that's always been an American thing is to be really, really divided and then be able to come together because like, you know, we've got to be able to go out there and kick ass. So, and you know, it's a, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. We were in the heart of Reston. We're in the heart of Fairfax and me and, me and uh, Brooklyn, we go for walks and stuff. Cause like a big thing for us was like, I want to see that, that standard American suburbia and go through, like look at that. And we would do it. We'd go through like these walks and go through Reston and we go through uh, um, DC and, and you'd see, on just the most random house just rows of the flag the american flag whether it's like hanging off the porch <laughs> or it's on a flagpole you, it, it doesn't happen here in australia especially in suburban living like you might see it in like stations out back and things like that where it's like really outback redneck australian and they're really like mm -hmm. you know, proud and patriotic to be like a, what they call a, a a jumbuck and things like that like they're hardcore australians by all means like don't piss on the flag because i'll kill you but in, in most sense like you're not seeing the flag being flown in the middle of a city or a suburban living or like things like that over there it was every other every other like house whether it was cookie cutter like suburban those built up areas or townhouses there was flags there was flags there's flags there's you know the car has a flag on it the post box has a u.s postal box flag on it like it's everywhere even at like the the localist street level there's like that pride is so present in america even when it's not pride like even when people aren't at the global sense like proud or like disagreeing it's just something we don't have and it's very american that's interesting that's interesting to hear you know like i travel other places and and i hear that so much it's like you guys just have a different level of like uh pride like like pride and just being from this random block of planet earth that you happen to be born yeah. into you know yeah. it's, like, it's, it's so interesting to me but you know I'll, I'll i'll take it i think i think that is important and it's one of those things it's kind of an under underpinning for all of us because at the end of the day like despite our differences we are all american and i include yeah. people that come like like you guys come over here you, you decide to stay you're American. And that's one of the great things that I love about this country is, is, is that it's like the the truly patriotic people, the real patriots here, 
everybody who wants to come and be a part of this like ridiculous experiment of democracy and capitalism that we have over here is more than welcome to come and you know the sky's the limit for opportunity really and it's it's it is pretty interesting to um be a part of uh, of a place that really is quite different when it comes to that uh than a lot of places yeah i couldn't, I couldn't agree more uh all right to wrap it up because we're going to ramble for fucking ever and i always say this to everyone is like i've scheduled 90 minutes and it goes way past that what is <laughs> One, give us one book you would recommend reading because we start, we're starting to add a collection to our recommended reading list from all of our guests and kind of get people to look at different perspectives. So give us one book on, on health that you would recommend reading, whether it be blood work, whether it be just general coaching, whatever. Um, and then give us something on history that you recommend reading. Yeah, Outlive by Peter Atia. I think that came out earlier this this year. That's a that is uh he he talks a lot about kind of what we talked about today, medicine uh 2.0 and then medicine 3.0 and I think a lot of what we're talking about on the preventative side of things and wondering why well, well wait a second why are you 400 pounds? He covers he covers that and and I think switching that mentality is going to be huge for getting more people healthy. Um, and then, uh, for anyone who hasn't read or I I would maybe recommend listening to the audio book, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, Uh, that is, uh, by far one of the more, um, look about, look at geopolitics, look at things that are going on right now, look at, you know, what's going on in some of our countries. I know your country, uh, uh, got locked down pretty hard uh there for a little bit and we got locked down pretty hard here in different parts of our country for a little bit and and look at some of the methodologies you know that 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 were happening back then and some of the things that are happening now and it'll really open your eyes to where the state of government is and uh you know as far as history um i think the some of the things that happened over there in the soviet union i think uh you really um one from really from Lenin through through Stalin through the through the Cold War, uh, I think era is is really important for us to look at as far as uh, paying attention to what what our governments are doing and being actively involved in knowing what's going on. So yeah, that's that's probably my top two right now. Love it. Yeah, very very good book recommendations. It's a morbid <laughs> read too. Like you have to take time reading that fucker. <laughs> Things are hard. Like it is. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's a lot to get through. And sometimes you just go like, I don't know if I, you know, because it comes if you get the unabridged version, right, it's like several volumes and you get yeah. through one and you're like, there's fuck, how much more of this do I have yeah. to go through? And it's amazing because he kept most of that in his head, right? Like yeah. most of it, he was just repeating it to, to himself in his head over and over again. So it's really, it's really impressive. And, uh, you know, even if you just do the abridged audio book on audible, it's like 40 hours of listening yeah, or something huge. like that. So <laughs> it's insane, but, uh, yeah. Mate, to finish off with, give us all of the, uh, the ways we can reach out to you, contact you, see your stuff. Um, obviously the merit guys stuff, uh, all the links and jazz so that we can um, attach it to the episode. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I would say, number one, you can find me on the Merrick Health website, um, uh, or you can email me directly at jariah.harden at merrickhealth.com. Any questions, you know, any interest in in anything, because I do do, um, you know, coaching, consultations, those kind of things uh, as well uh, on my own. And then, um, and, and that really kind of spans the bridge of anything health related or or you know um 
psychologically and things like that. If you need some coaching, I'm definitely willing to help out on that front. And then um, also my Instagram is uh, jhardenup, j underscore underscore harden underscore up. And uh, yeah, you can get at me in the DMs there too. I'm pretty, pretty active on there. So awesome, man. I appreciate your time. Sorry it ran even longer than I expected, but yeah, it went by pretty quick, man. Definitely fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, me and uh, one of my uh, uh, peers at Merrick are getting ready to launch a podcast soon. We're kind of getting through uh, some of the idea phase of, of where we want to take it. We'll definitely have to have you on. And that's awesome. I'm excited. That'd be fun. That'd be good fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, guys. Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, yeah, we'll chat soon.